Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to what I can offer you as a master coach. I can help you to focus on your why with clarity, uniting your passion with your purpose with a plan to create the life you truly desire. Book a free 20 minute coaching call right now via calendly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson forward slash call and we can take it from there. Today on Focus on Why, I'm joined by Caroline Flanagan. Caroline, welcome. Hi, Amy. It's so exciting to be here. Oh, you, you think? <laughs> really thrilled. <laughs> what is it do you think that will be exciting? I, well, already I've met you a couple of times before. I know the theme and the uh, focus of the podcast, which is something I love to get into. And yeah, I'm excited for the conversation that's going to unfold. Me too. Right. Well, let's just dive in then. So what is it you're focusing on at the moment, Caroline? Right now, I'm focusing on spreading the message of being the first. And the way I'm doing that, I'm focused on doing that at the moment is on social media, through my book called Be the First, and with the coaching and the speaking work I do with lawyers. And what's the difference between being the first and be the first? So they're the same thing. It's just that be the first is my call to action, right? It's what I'm calling on people to do is to go out and be the first. And that's about go and be the highest like version of yourself in the room in any context. So it's like a call to action, an inspirational call to action. And then being the first, I guess, is the day-to-day activity, the decisions you make, the um the way you approach the problems that you solve, it's the attitudes, the day-to-day stuff. Um, So both of those things beautifully aligned, but one is I'm calling on you to do it and the other one is you going out and doing it. (laughs) Love that. And what does it mean? Be the first means be in charge of how you think, be intentional about how you think about yourself in the room, in any circumstance, in any context. So I work specifically and increasingly with um, black lawyers. And we can get into how that's come about uh, later on in the in the conversation. And one of the biggest problems that black lawyers face is that they are almost always the only person in the room. So the only person of color in the room or the only black person in the room. Um, There are lots of other circumstances that can make you feel like the only one in the room, um, which is why as an aside, this message has such broad application is so powerful for a lot of people. But staying focused on the work I do and who I work with, black lawyers, that experience of being the only one in the room can make them think about themselves and behave in a way that is powerless, like everything is happening to them, it's out of their control. 
So, for example, if they work in a law firm or in an environment where it's mostly white, for example, then they can feel excluded really easily. They might be subject to racism, microaggressions. They might feel they can't be their authentic self. And all of that feeling and thinking, and I'm the only one, is so disempowering, it makes them want to give up. It makes them feel that there's nothing they can do because the circumstances are so overwhelming and so out of their control that there's nothing they can do. So be the first is calling on them to think of themselves differently in the room. So exactly the same circumstances, exactly the same challenges of, okay, there may be a ma the majority of people in the room may be different to you. There may be no one who looks like you. There may be that you don't have any role models. But if you think and you internalize the thought, I'm not the only one in the room, I'm the first, it completely changes how you feel about yourself in the room and therefore how you behave and what you see and how you interact in the room. I, I completely understand. It's so powerful what you're saying here. Was there a moment where you had this thought yourself? Was it at one moment or has it been a, an evolution? That's a great question. Honestly, I, it has been an evolution. One of the things that I discovered about myself, my own journey, is reflecting on how I got here. I started to see, I saw the pattern. I've had a lot of like incredible success. If, if we look at where I started and where I am now, I'm so like grateful and I'm not sure what the word is right now, but I'm almost in awe of the success I have achieved based on where I started. And looking at that, what I started to see as I have gone out into the world, spreading my message, wanting to help people, is see an attitude, an approach to being the only one in the room, which has been my experience, that has meant the way I show up to difficult circumstances is in the most powerful way. So thinking about myself as if I'm the first, rather than thinking about myself as if I'm powerless and I'm the only one. So that has been something that has continuously evolved on my journey. But there was absolutely a moment where I think I found the words to articulate it in a way I could explain it and communicate it to help other people. Um, so there was a particular moment a number of years ago where I attended a really fancy charity gala at one of the big hotels in London. It was amazing. So glitzy, everyone dressed up to the nines. And I was there with a friend of mine who's also black. And for your listeners who can't see me, I am a woman of color. I am black. And we were, there was just two of us. Everybody else in the room was white, basically, all drinking champagne, everyone looking really fancy. We were dressed up too. And this friend of mine turned to me at a certain point and said she was frustrated, she was angry, she had tears in her eyes. And she said, why does it always have to be like this? Why are we always the only ones? And when she said that, my thought was, 
I'm not the only one in the room. I'm the first. And I'd said that to her, like, we're the first. And it just showed and how that evening unfolded also demonstrated so clearly, Amy, the difference and the different result you can create for yourself, the different experience you can have in a room just by changing your thought, just by having a different thought. So my friend's experience, let's call her June, thinking, why are we the only ones? was a feeling isolated and lonely and excluded in that room. Whereas mine was, because I'm thinking, well, I'm the first, like I'm open, I'm curious to meet people who are different to me. I'm much like more relaxed than myself, not in my own head, much more open to meeting people. So I was able to make connections and build relationships in that room and have a completely different experience. Same facts, very different experience and outcome. Yeah, I, and and the the message that, that you're spreading is a is a hugely powerful one. It does have such breadth in its in its ability to to translate to lots of people thinking lots of different things in different environments. And ultimately, it's about being able to reframe your thoughts. And even though you can't control your circumstances or change particular circumstances, you can change your thoughts. It's one of the only things that you can do. Yeah, 100%. And that sums up, Amy, exactly what I'm about, really, and what drives me. One of the things that has that drew me so powerfully to coaching, and that I realized that I've developed an enormous capacity to do, and that's being bigger than my circumstances, by which I mean exactly what you said, right? So not being able to necessarily change those circumstances directly, but being able to change my thoughts and in changing my thoughts, being able to override or overcome those circumstances. And that's been my experience my whole life of having very challenging circumstances. And so I'm very practiced at doing that. And that's what I help, help my clients do. And are you able to share any ripples that are already occurring as a result of you sharing your message? Um, what do you mean by ripples? <laughs> as in, as in, what is happening? What's changing out there? Anything that is evolving, the ripple effects, the yeah. the positivity that is evolving as your this message is landing. Yeah. Wow. So it's quite. I, I feel quite emotional when I think about those ripple effects. So sometimes it's happening at the like such a subtle, like minor level in the context of, for example, I will deliver a keynote, this will be my message, and instantly coming off a stage, people will approach me and tell me, share, like experiences that they've had that they don't really share with very many people, their own sense of being the only one in the room and how changing, like just what I'm teaching and showing them about changing their thoughts and being the first, has just blown their mind and opened up a whole new world of possibility. So there's the instantaneous effect of somebody first hearing the message. But actually much more powerful are, I'll use examples. So my book, Be the First, the number of messages that I will receive from people I've never met, never heard of, different parts of the world, who have read this book and have heard this message and have written in to thank me for how well I've articulated their experience, how powerful the message 
is and for how I've changed their life. And I might never ever meet them. It's all this message in this book. So when you say ripple effect, I think, yeah, that immediate first ripple of when someone first hears the message and it's mind blowing if they've never had awareness of the ability to change your thoughts and therefore change how powerful you feel in a room and how you show up and the results you can create. So if you haven't heard that before, but then there's the ripple effect. I'm just even thinking globally is the, the reach and relevance of this message everywhere. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it, it really is for every person that is taking the time and the effort to reach out to you, you know that there'll be others who have thought about it, but haven't got round to it yet, but still have taken on board what you've shared. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great thought. And actually, I do need to remind myself of that sometimes. I, I, I'm thinking, you know, I like, I like reading myself. And there are so many books that I've like gone back to and I've read again, and or whether it's fiction, nonfiction, and I haven't written, I might write a review occasionally, but I don't write to every single author whose book I've loved and appreciated and it's changed my life in some way. So you're so right, right, for every one person who's written in, like, just think about how many more are out there. Was there ever a case of you not writing the book? Oh, yes. <laughs> Definitely. So, Amy, um, Be the First was my second book. I wrote my first book in 2015 and it was really, I found it really hard and experienced so much imposter syndrome writing this first book. Um, but I got the book out there and I remember thinking, I am never doing that again. <laughs> I'm really proud I've got this book out there, but I'm not doing it again. That was 2015. And then five years later, I started to get what I will describe as the itch right? Or the idea that starts to keep you awake at night. Now, at the time, I was doing a lot of work around imposter syndrome. It was getting so much traction. And the narrative around imposter syndrome was opening up. People were being more vocal about it. There was more interest in it. There were more experts on the subject. And lots of people saying to me, why don't you write a book on imposter syndrome? Why don't you write on imposter syndrome? And I I said, I'm not going to write a book unless I feel I have something different and new to contribute to the subject. So I didn't want it to be just another book on the experience of imposter syndrome. And for any of your readers who aren't aware of what that is, like summing that up in, in three words, it's literally the fraud, like feeling like a fraud, and luck, which is the feeling that your success is down to luck, thinking it's down to luck, and then exposed. So the fear of being exposed. Those are three really easy ways to identify um, imposter syndrome. So what I didn't want to do is just add more to the noise and in inverted commas. But the itch was around, it actually occurred to me during a keynote, Amy. So I was telling the story about the many times I've been the only person of color in the room. So circumstantially, I worked, for example, as a lawyer for nine years at two of the world's leading law firms, where I was almost always the only black person in the room. 
And so I have lots of examples and stories that I would share. So I was on stage and I typically I speak to law firms and big corporates. So that kind of audience. And so I'm telling the stories of me being the only black person in the room and in the audience, like, like occasion after occasion, event after event, I would see there would be one black person in the room or maybe two. And I realized there was this thing, first of all, nothing's changed, right? And what, although I was talking about imposter syndrome, which you can experience whatever your ethnicity or color, it comes up in so many different ways. I was thinking about that sole black person in the audience thinking it's actually different for you. And the reason why it's different for you is because your experience of imposter syndrome of not belonging is mirrored back to you in so many ways. So knowing what I do about environments, corporate environments, law firms, that feeling of being excluded, the racist comments or the microaggressions, the questioning of parts of you that you feel are authentic to who you are, but is seen as not the right fit. All of those, all of that sort of circumstantial experience is just like, it's like it doubles the impact, right? Or it, no, that's not the right expression. It compounds the self-doubt you have about yourself being in the room. It's compounded by your environment, your circumstances. So by the fact that you're not included with all the in-jokes and all the stories that are from quite sort of white culture um, type experiences or lots of the people you work with either went to Oxbridge or they go on skiing holidays or they go clay pigeon shooting with uh, clay pigeon shooting with clients and all of these experiences that often if you are the only black person in the room you've never had so I had this like moment on stage where I'm looking out and I see this one black person in the room and I'm talking about imposter syndrome I'm thinking yeah for you it's not just internal it's external as well and that's the, when I thought there's something more to add to this conversation there's more that needs to be said and I'm the perfect person to to say this and deliver this message so that's that was the itch that became too strong to ignore and I found the purpose there to to write the book and it's really interesting because what I hear when you're talking about be the first and you and you are being the first in the room what I see that comes with is a great deal of responsibility for change because it's a case of recognizing that you are the first. So what can you do to make this a different environment? What can, what is it that you having recognized that, what is it that you will do that will then be the case so that you're not the only person in the room? Yeah. So I love that you brought that up because it's a, it's a perception that a lot of this particular community have, right? And actually also women will have that perception if you're the first woman there. there yeah. is, the, the, and there I also is... want to caveat that I don't b believe it's just your responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I also want to explain because that's uh, just in case it comes across as that yeah. way. It's, this is a shared responsibility, um, mm. but you're likely to be the only person that's noticing it. Is that correct? Right. So you are, yeah, you're going to be feeling it more strongly yes. for sure yeah. if you are the only person circumstantially, you are the only one in the room. 
And I know this is a thought that lots of, say, the black lawyers that I work with, often they are at that sort of middling to getting into much more senior, the equivalent of C-suite level. But they, so if you're a lawyer, you might be an associate, senior associate or a counsel going into partnership, which would be the, the kind of top level. And what I see and hear a lot is, as well as the struggle, because there's no one, you haven't got the role models, there's no one who looks like you and those struggles, there is also the fear and that sense of like, what a burden it will be to be that first one in the room at the higher level. To the extent that it's such a burden, I don't want it. And I hear a lot of also communication around that. So the where we have all these firsts, there is the communication like that person should be doing more too. And what I want to say, my message really strongly is there is no additional burden to being the first. You, by focusing on what you can control, by you being empowered, you being the first and taking your career as far as you desire, fulfilling your potential, that is fulfilling that role already of of leading the way. So what I say is focus on your success, on progressing your career, and then at a certain point without any extra effort or burden or obligation on you whatsoever, it won't be just about how successful you are. It will be about who you become, which is the example of what is possible. The role model you never had, you will become that just by being true to your goals and your success and by continuing your journey. So I really hope that message comes through loud and clear that there's no weight or responsibility that you have to assume. Some people can have different opinions of that, but you are already by being in the room doing that. And how I know that's true, most authentically, is that is my experience. I've never once set out to say, right, my job is to pave the way for, like, that's never been what I've woken up and thought, I have to go to work to pave the way for those who will come behind me, right? My focus has been on being the best I can be, not letting the barriers or the bias stop me, finding a way to break those down and overcome those and be the best version of myself, go fulfill as much of my potential as I can. And I've seen what an example I have been to others. I've seen how I'm a role model to others just by doing that. No extra work at all. Who do you think you are the biggest role model for right now? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um. my children. I have four boys who I'm very proud of. I'll try not to get emotional talking about my boys. Um, and I dedicated to be the first to my four boys. And I want them, whichever room they end up in, wherever they go in life, and actually even from this age, so they are 12, 13, 18 and 20, they are typically one of a minority in the room. And I want them to always think 
I'm the first in whatever room that they find themselves in where they are in that minority position where they might be the only one circumstantially. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. I um, So obviously I wrote the book and it was all very exciting, took pictures with the family and we're all holding a copy of the book and um, I signed a copy for each of my boys, as you'd expect. Um, this is this is a couple of years ago now, but relatively recently, my um, so my number three, Luca, who's just started his new school and he's been playing rugby, he loves rugby. And the first matches, you know, he doesn't know anyone. And um, the team is actually relatively diverse, but most of the team know each other. They've played together a long time. And so I could see my son, he's, he's 13, but he's enormous. So he's this big strapping young lad. And I could, I was watching him in this, in his first rugby match, Amy, and his shoulders dropped, his head was down, his whole body language was screaming, I'm the only one, right? I'm the only one that hasn't played with everybody. I'm the only one. And like people weren't passing to him, all of this. And, you know, one of the uh, advantages, stroke disadvantages, depending on how my children are feeling on the day, of having a mum as, as a coach. And then the author would be the first is on the sidelines, you know, can't help myself. <laughs> but the essence of the point of this story and the essence of what I said to Luca during halftime was some version of you, you're not the only one on this team. You're the first. And I said, I literally wrote a book for you, right, to show you that. And so you will always know that. So walk onto that pitch as if you are the first. Put your head up your shoulders back and walk on and play the game you love and this makes me tear up he walked onto that pitch a completely different boy and that was actually uh they'd split the two teams and they weren't sure who was going to be first team and second team and as a result of that half of that match he was put into the 18 and his confidence just keeps growing so that is an example of, I guess, how I'm being a role model, or I guess how the message is working for my kids. But that's what I hope very much is that I will be that role model always for them. Yeah, I mean, I can so identify with that halftime talk. My goodness, I've had many of those over the years with, <laughs> with my son. Um, but I've never had to have the be the first one for sure. But I, I get the whole self-esteem and, and the confidence boost that you need from from different perspectives it's mm. it makes so much difference and yeah as a coach as a mum yeah they don't know how lucky these kids are for sure <laughs> <laughs> I want to pick up you you mentioned just before we we just spoke about this area that you said you'd found your purpose and I want to ask you what that means and when you say find it what do you mean I'll start with that bit because the answer is shorter, right? So uh, in terms of finding it, I think it's been a question of my purpose evolving. And what I found is just absolute clarity around what it is. So it's not new. It's not that I've spent the time I've had on the planet looking for it as such. It's just become clearer and clearer to me. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad the... you say that because I, I have a big issue with people saying I found it as though it's like down the side of the sofa right it's not it's, it does evolve and you create it you nurture it, you build it so thank you for that <laughs> yeah, you're welcome you're welcome 
Uh, and I was not expecting that question, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> yes. And so how, how has that evolved? It was clear to me from a very, very early age that I was unwilling to accept my circumstances. Um, and by, I use the word circumstances a lot. Um, so, of course, in just like normal conversation, unwilling to be limited by the conditions um, into which I was born, my uh, socioeconomic background, my ethnicity, my gender, all of those things that have like combined together, created some quite challenging, quite a challenging environment. So I grew up in a council flat in Birmingham with my uh, my dad, who's going out to work and trying to support us. My mum was very much in and out, more out of my life than in. Um, and that in itself was a very challenging experience for me growing up. Um, at the age of, I say at the age of six, because I had my first birthday my sixth birthday there but I was sent to an all-white boarding school very young right so when my kids were like five I really thought about what it would feel like and what it would be like for them to be in that to have that experience and to be basically taken away from home and that like I, I it's almost like I experienced how hard that was when I had a, a kid who was five and what made that particularly challenging was that I was the only black people in that school. It was all white. Um, it was in the late 1970s, which shows you how ancient I am. But late 1970s, early 80s in England, um, attitudes towards black people, um, racism, overt, blatant. Um, my teachers, for example, I had teachers who called me Lady of the Jungle. Um, and white friends who would say, Caroline, you're really nice for a black person. Yeah, so that was the reality for me at school and very, very challenging. Meanwhile, at home, the circumstances were such that home was very broken and difficult. We financially, we struggled to the point where six weeks before my A-levels, we were evicted. So at that point, I was actually living on my own with my brother. Um, we were 14 and 15 when we first started, like, having to support ourselves in, and that was in a council flat in London. And we managed to get by, <laughs> not being able to pay the bills very well, hence the eviction notices. Um, but at that age, it being very challenging. And I, I was, we were then evicted about six weeks before my A-levels, which was very, very challenging. And I was at school with lots of um, again, an all-white school and very much surrounded by people who had what I then felt was very normal, was extraordinary personal circumstances. But I understood that actually not being evicted, <laughs> there are people who didn't actually have that experience. They had normal lives and they had mum and dad at home or mum and dad, mum and dad in 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 two homes. Um so I was battling all of that while also battling being the only person of colour at, um, at, at an all-white school. So all of this was very, very challenging. Um, and given the wider context of racism at that time, there was a, an ongoing narrative about doors being closed to black people. That was a very real thing. I remember getting, this was actually a rejection letter I got from my sec secondary school where 
Um, and my mum, who'd been around at that time, I was 13, and she turned around to me and she said, it's not your fault. It's because places like that, they don't want people like us. And there was so much evidence for that being true during that time. Circumstantially, that's that was a message. I mean, it wasn't that long previously that there were signs on the door saying, no blacks, no Irish. You know, that was very, very true. But, and here's the key. When my mum said those words, and when anyone, that's, a, that's my mum's words were a version of, of, of words that were being said all the time. That was the narrative. Whenever that came up, my instinct was, that doesn't work for me. I won't accept that. And the reason I tell you that is because that purpose, I guess I have found in the way we've talked about finding your purpose has become clearer and clearer, stems from such a strong refusal, stubbornness to be limited by my circumstances that started at a very young age. Fast forwarding now, Amy, to the work I do. Uh, a lot of my coaching work around the time I wrote the, the first book, which was called Baby Proof Your Career. So that was focused on really helping women to stay in, women who worked really hard to build successful jobs, have independence, um, who were then leaving like big professions like the, the law and stuff, were leaving them because of childhood, uh, childhood, because of um, becoming parents, parenthood. And I was frustrated by that circumstance being a barrier to them succeeding. So what I did was I wanted to help women to stay with, continue the careers they'd worked so hard to build, to overcome the circumstances, be bigger than those circumstances that made it challenging being a successful woman in, in, in a work environment. And what's happened, what, what, where the evolution has been is increasingly where I've seen the the attrition rate so that's the fall off rate of black lawyers like seeing more and more black lawyers like me who have been drawn to this profession who've worked really hard often twice as hard to get where they are as I did who are reaching this point in their career where they have access to like the most they're, they're surrounded by the most powerful and influential people they have the ability to influence those people they have a voice they have a platform they have financial security for themselves, they have the opportunity to fulfill their own potential, all of these things that are available to them at this stage, but they're leaving because they feel the circumstances make it too hard or impossible. And therefore, once again, I see how, well, more than ever, it's about doing, bringing to them what's always been very powerful for me, and that's the belief in I can break down barriers I can overcome I can triumph over adversity and the circumstances that I can't change I can find a way to overcome so my purpose is to help those people who feel they can't win is to show them how they can and I'm curious to ask you does your brother share the same mindset I love that you asked about my brother. So my brother's my best friend. And yes, he does. What's fascinating, I have to tell you about my brother, is we had two very different lives. They couldn't have been more different. And I think it's so interesting how our very different life experiences 
despite that, we are still so aligned with this powerful sense of whatever the circumstances, we can overcome it, we can break through it. Love that. And, and it's, you know, it certainly shines and, and there was that solidarity of the two of you early on that, you know, clearly is still there, which is fabulous. And, and, and I think that is what's come through is this, what you stand for, what you stand against the values piece is, is huge. It's a huge part of just aligning you with what your next step is. And I guess that is my next question. What is your next step? I'm trying not to say that's a good question. And because <laughs> the good questions are the ones that I haven't haven't thought about directly or I haven't thought about my answer to that recently. I'm so fo- I've been so focused in this step. So I really appreciate the opportunity to think about that. My next step is bigger stage, bigger platform. And that maybe literally. So I was thinking, so this week, Amy, I did a keynote within a law firm and it was a great turnout. There were, I think about 60 or 70 people in the room, but virtually there were like 200 people streamed in. And what I felt overwhelming, and there was a, I did a version of uh, Be the First, certainly Be the First was the messaging. And what I felt really strong, it'd been a great session, the feedback was great, lots of questions and engagement. And I came off that stage thinking, more people need to hear this. This can't be confined to the law firms that bring me in to do a keynote at lunchtime or as a morning session. Like this needs to be broadcast. That's the feeling I had the message is that important. And I think the experience of being at the Professional Speakers Association Summit, which was a few weeks ago, as you know, and that being a a big stage from this perspective, because the whole audience are, it's just a big audience, as you know, right? Lots of people in the room, but also a very global audience, really gave me a sense of how speaking to people who are also speaking to people like how the message can, is proliferate the right word? I'm not sure, but how that ripple effect, right, that you mentioned before. So my next step is, I guess, to amplify this message, to create more of a ripple effect and to do that through either literally being on a bigger bigger stage, presenting it, uh, so through my speaking work, but also my coaching work, more and more changing people's lives I change one person's life their life impacts so many other lives so to just amplify so still be the first still that message still driven by the same sense of purpose but bigger and for it to go further yeah I love that and while you were just talking there about the whole global ripple effect and the fact that you've brought your children into it and you were just talking about your book, which was baby proof your your career and things. What I feel is I, I feel like this whole uh, merchandise thing of T-shirts saying I'm not the only one on the first or hoodies saying I'm not the only one on the first. Like, when I see that message everywhere, I know you've done it. Oh, my God, Amy, that's so good. That's so good. I love it. Right. I'm going to make a note to write. But the idea came from Amy on the podcast to do that because how good would that be? Yeah. Yeah. 
Christmas presents sorted. <laughs> yes, sorted. Maybe not this year, guys, but check in again next year. Great Brilliant. idea. I love that. Thank you. Oh, no, you're welcome. I just, I, when when you just see something and that messaging of of the reframe, you know, and then and then it's planted. Yeah. It's planted for me. I get it. I understand it. I recognize it. And it is such a powerful one. And yeah, well done. Well done. It, you know, congratulations on you talk about circumstances. You said it's a word that you use. And yet I believe that your circumstances are were there for you to become the person that you've become to then, you know, spread this message for sure. So yeah. I'm sorry, not that it, not that you would wish any of the difficulties on anyone, you know, that's not what I'm saying here, but they have been the catalyst that has given you the platform from which now that you're standing and standing for what you believe in and against what you don't. That is spot on. And that's a hundred percent how I see it. Um, I, can I tell you a very quick story about when I was writing Be The First and you'd ask me like, was it I think you asked me was it easy to write the book so there was a point where I you know as all great authors experience you know your draft is late you're late you're behind schedule um the publisher's waiting for you to send back the final draft and I remember just as I was getting to the end I'd done all the hard work and I remember thinking I can't I can't put this out there I'm I just had a real imposter syndrome crisis of I'm a fraud I shouldn't be writing this book Bear in mind, this book is called Be the First, and it's like subtitle is People of Colour, Imposter Syndrome and the Struggle to Succeed in a White World. So I was writing about the experience of being a black person in a white world. Literally my experience since the age of five, six, right? So on paper, clearly, logically, <laughs> I might have something to say about that. But in my head, and this is the wonderful thing about imposter syndrome, which we know and love, right? I could see things, I felt things completely differently that I was a fraud. And a big issue I had, and I struggled with honestly, was I had this fear that I would be judged by my target audience, by the people I was writing this book for. I was afraid of being judged by a black person who would pick this up. And I felt that so acutely, I was willing to not publish the book. And thankfully, thanks to being a coach, if I coach myself all the time, I'm an example of my work, right? I coached myself on this, what felt like such an overpowering resistance to bring it out. And where I got to as a result of the coaching skills that I have that I use on myself was instead of like, who am I to be writing this book? I got to. I'm the one they need. I'm exactly the right person to write this book because I can bridge that gap, right? I have been, it has been my experience. I've, I've felt it all. I've been exposed to it all since a, such a young age. It's literally who I am. And exactly as you were saying, all of the experiences, the circumstances I've encountered have made me who I am and when I think about the people who I need to have who I want to help they need me to be that person who's had that experience they need that person right so it all ties in and feels so purposeful 
not just in my intentional purpose, but as if there was purpose all along. I actually feel that in my body, that that feels true to me. Yeah, I love it. And people who worry about not having a purpose know that they already have them. Everybody has a default of grow and give. That's that's to be, that's there. It's then what do you do with that? What What is it that you want to grow into or grow towards and give? What is it that you then channel? That's the, the piece that is needed to work with. Oh, I love that. That the grow and give is is innate. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's about then finding out what your unique elements are, you know, and you ha- everybody has those and everybody has their unique lived experience that can be channeled into a purposeful future. And it's it's beautiful. It really is. I love that. And what I would add from my experience of of finding this path, being on this journey is it might be helpful for some of your listeners is like it takes some time. Sometimes it can take a while. Like you don't have to find that find again, that answer immediately. And like, that's okay, that it will take a while or that it's evolving or you haven't quite figured it out yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Caroline, my goodness, what a beautiful conversation we've had. Thank you so much for sharing why you do what you do and why you are who you are. How would people reach out and connect with you? Um, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, Amy. It's been amazing. Um, great thought-provoking questions. And I've really appreciated being able to talk about uh, Be The First, my very, very passionate purpose. How you can find me. Um, LinkedIn is the most direct, I guess. So LinkedIn, please connect with me. I'm Caroline Flanagan on LinkedIn. You'll see me. I'm wearing a red dress and a smiley face. Very easy to find. Um, I am also on Instagram, if that's your preferred chat. And otherwise, my website, carolineflanagan.com. Um, I also have a podcast called The Caroline Flanagan Podcast. Amazing. Well, all those links will be in the show notes. So super easy and no excuses not to connect with Caroline. Absolutely. Caroline, thank you. Do you have some final words, please, for the listener? Just one sentence, just one thought for your listeners' brains. You're not the only one in the room. You're the first. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.